Hi everyone, it's Adam from Monkey Tennis here, just saying a huge thank you to all of you that have supported my charity appeal uh, so far. For those that haven't heard about it, this September I'm going to be swimming uh, 15 kilometres uh, between five islands in Cornwall. Uh, I'll be swimming the Isles of Scilly, that's Scilly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. Um, I'm doing it because I want to, but also to raise money for Calm, the campaign against living miserably. It's a well-known statistic that 125 people in the UK die by suicide every week, and Calm run a free and confidential helpline for people to speak through their problems and ultimately to help prevent suicides. Um, I'm looking to raise enough money to train two new phone workers um, to man those lines um, and I'll be doing it by swimming the Isles of Scilly in Cornwall. Um, if you're looking to support me, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can donate at justgiving.com. Um, just go there and search for Adam Swim Silly. That's Adam Swim Silly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. All donations greatly appreciated. Thank you for helping me to support Calm. And now, on with monkey tennis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, it's Tom Stubb here, your favourite host of Monkey Tennis. As you know, since 2016, we've been tirelessly dissecting, discussing, researching and celebrating the work of Mr. Alan Gordon Partridge. And we're fast approaching the incredible milestone of 100 episodes. If you've been enjoying the pod, we've set up a Kofi page where you can show your appreciation and buy me slash us a coffee. All you need to do is go to co-fi.com slash monkey tennis. That's ko-fi.com slash monkey tennis. If you've been enjoying listening and you'd like to show your appreciation, please consider buying us a coffee. Kenko or Flavia, it will help us to continue to rake through Alan's past and future output. Nothing changes with the podcast. It's simply a way for you to show your support for the cream of our discharge. Thank you. And very thank you. Now, on with the episode. Jed, roll the theme music. Welcome to Knowing Me, Knowing You. Knowing me, Alan Partridge. Knowing you, the audience. I've got a hit on my hands. Monkey tennis? Is that good therapy or balmy old cack? Conrad Knight's socks. Monkey tennis? I'm Alan Partridge. Why are you such a tip? Lots of meaty chats. Monkey tennis? I just want you to admit that you hate Les Dennis. What is it? What is it? What is it? Monkey tennis? Okay, I'm in Manhattan. What do I do now? You are a little shit. Monkey tennis? That in England is a whore. I've taken drugs! Lord Morgan. If you speak again, physically hit you. And on that bombshell... Monkey tennis? Thank goodness it's radio. I never thought I'd say that. 
Hello and welcome to Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast, where we're now going to take a deep dive through the Knowing Me, Knowing You radio series. I'm Adam Brooks and I'm joined by Tom Dark. I'm more of a kind of Argos World of Leatherman myself. Nick Alder. The Nobel Prize for Literature. You never won it. What went wrong? And Tom Stab. No tree has died. No child has cried to make the product that you have buyed. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be start kicking off, obviously, with episode one, uh, broadcast originally on the 1st of December 1992, I think, when I was 10 years old. Um, it's worth mentioning at the top of the show as well, if people haven't heard Know Me Knowing You Radio, where they can find it. It's all on Spotify, which I found very convenient. Yeah, randomly. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's on Spotify legally. I think it's worth pointing out. Oh, it's on there as a podcast with all the official artwork and everything. Yeah, but, but uh, it's definitely not a legal upload. Oh, it's definitely not, because at the end of the shows, there's uh, clips from... Like, like the the show afterwards, like it's not been yeah. clipped oh, appropriately. See, I thought that was just bad editing on the part of the BBC. No, 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 absolutely no. not. Oh, um, okay. So just to be clear, yes, it is there. But now that we've promoted the fact that it is there, it probably might be taken. Might down. Get taken down. Okay. Well, yeah, grab it while you can. Otherwise, probably available through other legal uh, outlets. Well, they do. They do often repeat it on Radio Four. So when they do that, you can get it on BBC Sounds for probably a month or so. Um, Obviously, as, as I did talk through in great length, there are many physical formats on which the uh, series is available. Should we just go through those again? Should yeah, we yeah, yeah. Happy to <laughs> talk through. Like, there's different artwork for everything, and it's like the episode order. No, right, different okay, and, yeah. right, right. Uh, I mean, just, no, I've uh, even got the. Uh, no, the no, no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, just at the moment, knowing me, knowing you, is not on BBC Sounds at the moment. Just a little check. Just had to say that. <laughs> just, just had to say that. So, Adam, you, you were you were ten when this aired. Yeah, uh, I was also ten. Were uh, you though? Yes. Nick, <laughs> you? Well, I'm the same age as you, so I was also ten. Ages can be different. <laughs> Sometimes uh, the ages will be false. Hang on, guys, I'm getting some breaking news. The ages can be different. <laughs> Tom Stab. Uh, this was first of December, so one day before my eighth birthday. Wow, there we go. Maybe uh, Tom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there he was, crouched at Radio 4. Um, something I noticed straight off the bat with this is um, obviously that there's when well, we know there's a live studio audience um, and quite a large one, I think. I mean, Steve, presumably already well known enough to draw a fairly big, if non paying, radio crowd. Well, uh, so question so was there a live studio audience? Because yes. sometimes, but sometimes the laughter is engineered in a way to, you know, help facilitate the jokes. But I mean, there definitely was a live studio audience. Yeah, I think I think the reactions sound real. I think yeah. So when there's canned laughter, you can sort of tell that the flow of it is the same as the laugh you heard earlier. You know. Yeah. No. No. I'm not suggesting it's not. It's just there's like in the very beginning, um, you know, you hear uh, Alan kind of shushing the crowd, even though there isn't any kind of commotion going on. It's just interesting that he's using the audience as part of the, the joke. Yeah, well, like, I suppose there are some bits where they laugh as if it's a real show, and then there are some bits where they laugh as if they know it's Steve Coogan yeah. doing a comedy show. I mean, show, I, yeah. I think this is stuff that will we'll come to a few various points, but you can tell there are points where the audience are definitely a bit ahead of the joke, because obviously things are kind of, in effect, being performed in front of them. So you can kind of get ahead of where, what Alan's going to say or something like that. But um, yeah, they, they it was a live studio audience for every show. And I think what they did, I think they actually recorded for, I've read somewhere and there's an episode where we'll get into this in a bit more detail. But I know actually, I think that does come up in this episode with the final guest, but um, there was an alternate ending. But ah. I, th I think they actually recorded for around 90 minutes and then they, they condensed it down right. to a half hour show. So I think there's a lot 
a lot of content that doesn't make it into these final shows as well. Statistically, the likelihood is that somebody that was in the audience of this is now listening to this podcast. So if you want to give us a little bit of insight, statistically, if you run the numbers on that, well, I just think you know if <laughs> yeah, you if, see the workings. If you're if you're a partridge fan through and through, and you mm. have been for years, and then you find out that we're we're covering mm. this, I, I would tune. Oh yeah, I'd like uh, to think so. I if you find out there's a I would brilliant podcast, just to hear my own voice. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, there's a brilliant podcast. Oh, yeah, Where, where's talk- that available? I'm not talking about ours. I'm right, saying good, there yeah. are brilliant podcasts out uh, there. Do yeah. listen to them. Yeah, the partridge pod at gmail.com if you were in the audience for Know Me, Know You Radio, we'd love to know how you got the tickets and uh, what the experience was like on the day. Um, they neatly slide in uh, that he comes from sport as well. They yep. re-established the character quite well. Um, presumably, this is the first foray for Alan out of pure sports reporting in real life. Well, I say in real life, in the APU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up it to now, be. he's uh, just yeah. done commentary and this yeah. is his breakout. Yeah, this is his moment. Uh, one of the things that uh, I found not startling as such but because i hadn't listened to these shows before uh just hearing his voice like his voice has quite a different tone to it compared mm. to the alan that we mm. now kind of expect like it's quite an exaggerated voice compared to what is now a much more sort of muted it's what normal. they it's what they had to explain away in i partridge with the passage about him getting some tips from des Lyman. <laughs> yeah because yeah, yeah. they 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 yeah they realized that they went from a very sort of nasal sports commentator john motsony kind of thing mm. And then they had to create him, make him a bit more well-rounded. So yeah, they they wrote in that Desline and told him to drop the nasal uh, attitude, the nasality. Yeah. So Adam, you said uh, that you know obviously Alan or Steve was enough to sort of draw an audience or draw a live audience at, at this stage. So just a quick recap on where this sits within the timeline, which we spoke about in the previous episode. Uh, this was broadcast between. Um, on the hour radio show, both those series and the day-to-day TV show. So both series of on the hour by this point have both gone out. So obviously that would have probably generated a bit of a cult audience. And this would be the Mm. first sort of thing from that world, that universe to to have its own breakaway um, spin-off show. So I imagine if that cult audience has been built up over the course of two series of on the hour radio show, then there's a built-in audience ready for whatever that spin-off is going to be. And it just so happened that it was Alan. And I th- you know, I, th- I think Coogan was already doing other stuff. So Coogan would have been a known entity mm. at this point just from doing other like impression work and things like that as well. Yeah. He'd w- he won the Perrier in 92 as well. So his yes, profile would have right. been quite yeah, high. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's a few things that come up here that, that are then repeated again throughout the APU in future. Uh, things like Alan referring to this as my show, my own show, like <laughs> stressing that it's very much about him. Um, and then, uh, oh, and also things like him saying, uh, he says something and he's like, don't write in saying that's sexist. It's not. So everyone's expecting him to justify why it's not sexist, but it's just, you've just got to take his word for it. That sort of thing crops up again and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it time for the first guest? It is. Surely. A seminal moment. Mm. Uh, Lawrence Camley, uh, who wrote an 800 word book, The Soul of Time, uh, is the first guest on No Eight, Mean 800 Radio. word? Sorry, 800 page. <laughs> and 950,000 words. And oh, it cost, okay. yeah, yeah. 950,000 words and it costs eight pounds. <laughs> That's just great value. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that, that feels and, and like... And it weighs eight pounds, not costs. Oh, right. So, so far, <laughs> our, our research is all over the shop. So Adam didn't have the numbers right and right. I thought it cost eight pounds. I'll give you pounds. the quote here. So the book is written, The Soul of Time weighs in at nearly eight pounds and is 950,000 words. I was half the way there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. I'm, I'm still going that my, my comment of it's great value for money value for money still applies. I mean, it's still, was, still valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we're off to a great start here. You're the only one whose words bear any scrutiny whatsoever <laughs> without falling apart like wet tissue. To be fair, I'll that, take it. that makes sense now why he says your book 
don't drop it on my foot. Because I didn't really get that. I just oh, thought... Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, he does the whole, uh, know me, uh, Alan Partridge, knowing you, Lawrence Camley, aha. Lawrence's aha, it's unsure if he's playing along or just mm, a bit It's a bit like Luster, isn't it? It's just sort of, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I think there are quite a lot of guests where they don't really commit to the aha properly as we go through this series, which is quite funny. Yeah, and, it, that, and it's nice because it always shows the interviews off to a bad start. Yeah, um, always on the, the, on the on the back foot straight away, basically. We mentioned briefly on a previous episode, but um, in the in the Know Me Know News, there's always a theme of Alan being slightly on the ignorant side, clashing with highbrow guests slightly on the pretentious side. Mm. So we're not naturally just siding with the guest against Alan. There is a bit of sympathy on Al- for Alan. Um and I think we, we said that the cast have, have said themselves that often Alan's used like a tool to sort of cut through the ways that people are a bit stuck up and mm. a, bit, a bit kind of up themselves. And so that's something that definitely comes through with this interview of Lawrence. Also worth noting that uh, Lawrence Camley uh, is played by Patrick Marber. Um, again, I think I mentioned this in, in Knowing Me, Knowing You, the TV show. I think he's brilliant in this whole series, like a bit yeah. of a spoiler. Yeah. He's so good. And I think it's obviously, as again, we've mentioned on the podcast previously, he had... Uh, bigger fish to fry in terms of he wanted to go and, and be a playwright and has been a very successful playwright. He has a play currently on in the West End at the moment. I saw walking past the other day. Yeah. Um, but I think he's such, it's so wasted him in front of the, ca- not being in front of the camera anymore because I think he's so good. Well, that was something I was going to say, actually. I'd, I'd be really interested to, to know about, a bit more about how they actually did these shows live because I think Coogan did quite essentially dress in character as Alan right. because we talked about him going to Lily White's and buying a Pringle sweater and whatever else it was. Um, but I wonder whether the other characters did any kind of, had any kind of mm. outfits to, like how performative it was or whether it was literally just five people with microphones in yeah, front of the audience. There's, there's no real sort of behind the scenes pictures. Or it, it, when that I have found one actually, right. um, which we should pop on socials, but um, just for the benefit of us being in the room, I can show you that now if you, if you like. Yeah, um, while you're looking that one up, um, also, I mean, the way that I've been to a few Radio 4 comedy records and the way they tend to do it is that people are all kind of sat out on tall, on like bar stool chairs with mics yeah. in front of them, just pitching in as and when. So it'd be interesting if anyone was in the audience for this to know whether the guests kind of walked on as they were introduced by Alan or whether they were all already on oh, stage yeah, that's a good point, and they yeah. just kind of pipe up in different voices as as he refers to them. So Tom's just shown us the picture. Steve very much dressed in sort of classic Coogan attire. The rest of them are just kind of in Patrick Marber's in a suit. Partridge is high, you mean. Yeah, attire, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, the rest of them are just in kind of normal, normal clothes, clothes, really. Yeah. So we, th- there's no real indication of what episode that is from. That could be anything, I think. Well, though, like, Marber is dressed quite smartly there, so that could be an in-character thing. But yeah, but it could be The rest of them of... look like they're just in their civvies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah, I mean, with the exception of Alan, they kind of look like some kind of trendy post-rock band, but yeah. <laughs> Alan sort of looks ludicrous and ridiculous in that picture. Yeah. One thing I imagine we'll go on to explore as we go through the episodes is just how well suited the each of the guests is to the actor playing them. So Patrick Marber tends to mop up the kind of literary, slightly snobby... Smarmy mm, is the word smarmy, that I've used yeah, in my yeah, notes. Um, yeah. yeah, which I mean, I'm not saying he's like that as a person, but certainly his interests seem to lean towards the kind of the more highbrow, you know, like you say, <laughs> the, the kind of wanting, you know, becoming a successful playwright and, and moving in those kind of more... Th- Mm. theatre circle are you saying he's not having to act too much in these i'm not i'm not i'm just saying i'm just i just think that they they really they they pitched them just right i think you know the characters rebecca front plays i think she is the, she is the best person in the cast for them and mm. so uh, you know. adam leave rebecca front alone <laughs> so yeah alan and lawrence here operating on totally different yeah, levels very um, much so. as alan says to uh, lawrence your book sounds a bit deep is it lawrence says i like to think there's one or two jokes in it uh, and then we 
discovered just how different <laughs> Lawrence yeah. and Alan's idea of what a joke is. Um, yeah. So Camley references uh, in terms of length of, of his book. This is my French here, GCSE French. I'm going to try and pronounce this. A la recherche de temps perdu, which according to the Guinness World Record site is the longest novel. Um, it translates as In the Search of Time. It's by Marcel Proust. It's published in seven parts between 1913 and 1927. And Wikipedia states that it is 1,267,069 words long. That is the longest, mm. uh, which is 4,215 pages. So a little bit longer than... Because he says it's not like the longest, but then he had one of the books that he does yeah. quote is actually still, according to the Guinness World Record site, the longest book and ever published. Does that does that retail for eight pounds as well? Can we find? <laughs> that? That's a good point. Um, I, I, did, I did a bit of research it. into uh, largest books as well, but I, did, I looked at the weight. Uh, so uh, according to the Guinness World Records, the largest book measures five meters by eight point zero six meters, uh, weighs approximately. Uh, 1500 kilograms and consists of 429 pages um and yeah looking into this uh like you just talked about stuff um 950,000 words definitely would put the soul of time in the top 10 longest books in the world for sure um by comparison uh because i I thought you know we talked about sometimes these characters are based on you feel like they're a kind of referencing real life celebrities or people i thought the lawrence camley character is perhaps a bit reminiscent of Perhaps Stephen Hawking with a brief history of time is is a bit of a real life reference point. Mm-hmm. So just for comparison, a brief history of time is only fifty one thousand words. Only. So a very very small book in comparison. Practically a pamphlet. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, around this point, Alan uh, is is trying to jump on common ground with Lawrence, basically. Firstly, over the idea that there's jokes in in the books, although although the things that Lawrence thinks are jokes, Alan does not. And then jumping into their seemingly shared love of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so Alan declares himself Sherlock's biggest fan. He's read all the books. Um, and then about 30 seconds in, we realise that Alan thinks Sherlock Holmes is a real yeah, person. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and obviously Sherlock's revisited in Nomad, Alan's mum disapproving of his suspected homosexuality. Um, and then there's a kind of, I would say, what starts as quite a polite exchange by Lawrence to steer Alan in the right direction when he says, uh, I always thought it was a, a shame that Conan Doyle had to kill him off. Like He's trying to, he's trying to kind of make it obvious to Alan that that Conan Doyle mm. wrote the books, Sherlock Holmes isn't real. Um, but no, Alan is not deterred. Uh, I think <laughs> I think you'll find it's Moriarty that killed him. And then uh, and then it gets very kind of surreal quite quickly where he starts to think that actually Lawrence is putting forward a, a new theory that no a one's conspiracy ever heard, theory, that yeah. there's a shadowy Conan Doyle character that's never <laughs> referred to in the books that actually was working with Moriarty to kill Sherlock Holmes. It's, uh, it's great. I really love this bit. He says, the Doyle is the Irish Parliament. And then you have Alan going, this conspiracy is getting bigger. You can't trust anyone these days. You've got the Doyle... Moriarty, the Irish Parliament, on that bombshell, I think we'll move on. And I think that might be the first bombshell use in this series. It is, well, and yeah. in, inside five minutes as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, although we do come to find that he pretty much ends every episode with an on that bombshell. I think yeah. he, gets, he gets used to... Yeah, he I does. think he, he mistakes th- something big going wrong at the end of each episode for a great high-stakes bit of drama to make people feel like the show was brilliant. I wonder if we could run an accurate tally of how many bombshells there are in this series there's definitely one at the end of each episode and we've got another one here so there's at least mm. seven i wonder if there are any more if we keep an eye out um, in uh, in my research for this i assumed that there would have, there were like tens and tens of um sherlock holmes novels like there was loads and loads and loads of them but there was only four sherlock holmes books the rest of them were, sh- were short stories really yeah yeah mm. see it, I, I, i'm as surprised as you are clearly I mean, I thought how, how many short stories though? They're quite a lot. A few, of, but like, yeah, 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 like 
10 or 15, but it's still not like, I imagine that there was like this huge sort of sprawling narrative of him and Moriarty over the course of multiple, multiple books, but there are only actually four proper novels. So four like full length yeah. stories. Yeah. And, then, and oh, the rest okay, were short okay. stories, but then obviously, you know, what's the definition of a short story, but it's yeah. good though. We're all, we're all learning. We're something. learning That's something. Like exactly. And also the, the, how we, they get on to Sherlock Holmes is, is the question that Alan asks, um, uh, Lawrence, like, which book would you like to get stuck in a lift with? So, question to the group: What book would you like to get stuck in a lift with? Uh, the Big Book of Lift Maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I probably something that I could colour in. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't got. I haven't said you've got any crayons. Oh god! I'll, I'll just make sure I'm with Adam then, so I can guess out. Otherwise, I'm, otherwise I'll probably <laughs> yeah, die I mean, in there. I, I think Adam's got the best answer there, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, de- can't, definitely not every ruddy word because I'm sick of looking at that book. <laughs> Um, Alan says to as as Nick chose his quote at the top of this episode Alan says to Lawrence the Nobel Prize for Literature you never won it what went wrong uh, basically he uses that as a, yeah. as a, a diffusing technique yeah. to like kind of mm, it, he yeah. does it a couple of times to sort of like he he, cl- he can clearly not win the uh, argument and he can see the conversation isn't going anywhere so he kind of just does an absolute rug pull of a comment that undermines and puts that person down in an attempt to exert his yeah. authority. He knows he's ballsed up and he's flustered, so he basically goes on the attack, the counter-offensive. <laughs> With yeah. the first guest of the first episode yeah, of yeah. the series. Yeah, yeah. Set, set the tone. <laughs> it's sort of typical of Alan moving into unfamiliar waters, although I realise even with sport, you know, which is supposedly his specialist subject, he fucked up all the time. It made me, made me think, <laughs> I guess, question to the group, what are Alan's familiar waters? Are there any topics that he could talk about knowledgeably without being wrong? Cars? Oh yeah, possibly, possibly cars. cars. Yeah, he's never he's never been proven wrong on cars, has he? I don't think, or n- not, no, not, not in I a big way. Thinks so. he becomes a bit of a chocolate connoisseur. I suppose maybe <laughs> a BBC commissioning policy. <laughs> and I think as an extension to cars, I think his knowledge of UK the UK road network is probably oh yeah, that's good. true. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So basically, motoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And well, that's about it. I can't think of much more. <laughs> Another great exchange with Lawrence here where they get into a weird kind of fishing net metaphor. He's saying, it's a big fish, your net's full of holes, to which Lawrence says, all nets are full of holes. And Alan says, granted, but your holes are too big to catch the Nobel Peace Prize fish thing. <laughs> he just absolutely loses the plot. Um, and then he goes into the audience at this point. So I thought, do we think that he's gone to a genuine member of the audience or has he gone to a plant in the audience? Or did we think that there was an audience, but this bit was record, pre-recorded and then played out? I wasn't quite sure how how the audience participation worked here. I would assume that there wasn't um, actual audience participation. I would assume that that is a planned. Um, I would think. Plot. I would imagine it's scripted because I think this is a scripted show. I mean, it, it feels like there's definitely a bit of improvisation around things, but I. I think it is a fairly scripted show, so I don't, I don't think they just randomly throw it to well, the we, member. We know from sort of interviews and things like that that there is very, very little of Partridge that is ever improv So I can't imagine that they would be doing it at the beginning if it's mm. a trait that's carried on throughout the entire sort of um, development of the character. They, they, when we've, you know, we've asked questions about, like, has there been many outtakes or things on the cutting room floor? And there isn't really because it's so heavily scripted, even down to, you know, Peter Bainham writing lines in the back of a car in the second yeah. series of I'm Alan Partridge. Thing, so it's, scri- <laughs> it's scripted down to the last minute, yeah. but it is scripted, yeah. Uh, and then in a final ditch effort to try and stamp some sort of intelligence uh, or try and come a cropper with Lawrence, Alan uh, demands that he names the capital of Kenya. Or I think, no, isn't it someone in the audience asks that question? Yeah. The audience yeah. member asks uh, asks the question in an attempt to kind of show off his uh, like knowledge. <laughs> um, and yeah, Lawrence doesn't really want to kind of 
play ball with that question, but ultimately concedes and gives in. Because Alan just pushes like, him into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. And I was also quite surprised that Alan actually knew the answer as well. I mean, does he? Did, yeah, did he though? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, and again, I don't know. It's <laughs> you all just play- say, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, I imagine I, I I have a vision throughout a lot of this series that there are researchers and runners, though, that you don't see that are supporting Alan in every way, shape and form on this uh, show. He's not doing this on his own. Um, oh, well, I mean, he's doing the bare minimum of work, which I think yeah. gets exposed as the series goes on. But I mean, that's a very consistent character trait. It might just be me, but I was also devastated by the fact that there was um, a question about Lawrence's <laughs> dog that we never get to hear. I thought that was quite... A weird, like a very interesting bit of scripting because why, why that would be the detail to choose? Because you could kind of tease anything to be like we don't have time for that. So you you uh, could have something which is deliberately funny, leading yeah. to like a built-in gag, mm. something like a question about your dog here. Like that's so vague and it makes you think like what what I was s- the thought process? I, s- behind I mean, that? Uh, unless there's unless there's a literary reference that we're missing, I suppose it's maybe it's, yeah. it's more just to show up the fact that. Alan has got this great thinker on his show who's written yeah. like a yeah, weighty Yeah, and tone. it's just shit questions. And, and, yeah, and and, yeah. and the sort of research he's done is, what have I got in common with this guy? Has he got a dog? I've got a dog. I'm going to ask yeah, him Yeah, maybe, maybe like that's that sort it. Of thing. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think there are, it, it's also funny, like, as the series progresses, there are a few other dog references as we go on as well. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come to it. We'll <laughs> yeah, come to it. Yeah. But yeah, I was I was keen to hear the dog question. Um, but I think to your point, it, it's mm. surreal and it's throwaway and it highlights the fact that he has the opportunity to discuss, you know, potentially bigger questions with this guest. Like interview a great mind. But yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. talk about your pets. Yeah. Yeah, he sees yeah, himself as kind of one of the next big um, hosts of a chat show. Well, he thinks he's going to be the next Wogan, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, he, he's obviously, he knows enough about chat show hosts that he also thinks with all of these guests that there should be an element of sparring and sort of combativeness. And as mm. the theme comes up again and again of him he gets a smart person on, so he tries to prove that he's smart or smarter. You know, he gets he knows they're coming on the show because they've got a specific skill, but he also can't handle the fact that they've got a skill that he hasn't, and so he's forever trying they're to match better them. than him. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's the end of Lawrence. Um. I quite like that the, the structure of this is a bit more like a sketch show in that there isn't a lot of crossover between the different segments. Is there? It's almost like mm. each guest is more or less a self-contained bit of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. You could. You could kind of. Dip in and dip out to just a guest, like one of the three guests per episode almost. So it's quite interesting with the way he wraps up the interview with Lawrence Camerley that he actually si- signs that off as just saying a clever man. So it's not an insult. Whereas I think as the series progress, as the series progresses, he gets a lot more dismissive and actually just openly insults to guests as he wraps up the interviews. Oh, and even more so when we get into No Me, No You TV series. Oh, I course, think they really yeah. run with it at yeah. that point. Um, and I think... You know, with all the Sherlock Holmes stuff in this section, it's obviously brilliant that the Gibbons brothers took that through uh, in quite a lot of depth in Nomad as well, with Alan being a, a Sherlock Holmes fan, which is just a nice nice linkage between the um, different eras of writing teams. So we move on to the next guest, and uh, I'm just going to read the uh, the intro that Alan gives her, because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, the sort of little subtle digs here. Um, so this is Alan. Now, my next guest is a woman who first stamped her feet with the women's movement 18 years ago. Her book, Livid Doll, was read by angry, angry and irritable women alike. Since then, she's written for for journals as varied as Women's Own and the Radio Times, and now she hosts the hugely popular therapy show, Problem People, on cable TV. Please welcome the intelligent and not unattractive (laughs) Ali Tennant. So he's got so many digs at women just within that little section there. And it's it's very telling that in Alan's mind... um, 
should those things be mutually exclusive being intelligent and being attractive as well it's just he can't kind of comprehend that a woman could be both um did you anyone catch the the reference in the title of her book as well uh so her book's called livid doll instead which of is, living doll instead of cliff, yeah. cliff richard's living doll yeah, yeah. Um, a minor detail that I noticed as well in the Everybody Word script book, uh, Ali Tennant is ALI. Uh, you can also find the old Alan Partridge BBC website uh, if you dig around a bit. And on that website, Ali Tennant is ALLY. There are quite a few interesting just errors on the old BBC website as well. Okay, that's interesting because I went to Wikipedia and looked at it and it was A-double-L-Y and I edited the Wikipedia page to change it to A-L-I as per the book in uh, Every Ready Word, the name in Every Ready Word. This is a debate that could rage for centuries. <laughs> um, she also enters the Dancing Queen, presumably just because she's a lady and that's how lazy they are when they come to picking songs. Yep. Yeah, so, I quite like how a lot of the ABBA song choices are very on the nose for the guests. Mm. So yeah, yeah this it, is Ali Tennant, feminist and therapist, played by Rebecca Front. Uh, and she's brought some special people with her, Linda and Peter. They're not disturbed, Adam. They're not disturbed. <laughs> Two of the disturbed people, as Alan describes it. <laughs> what I enjoy as well, he keeps saying that as well. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter how much he pushes back on it. He, he keeps referring to them as the disturbed people. I did think that this was actually quite pioneering for Alan. This is live therapy on radio, and this is something that actually does now happen. Um, there are Radio 4 like therapy shows and countless podcasts devoted to this sort of thing. So maybe this is actually an Alan world first. Yeah, but I think that this is this is done with obviously obviously it's humorous but it's there's there's not much tact to it um, and it's <laughs> no. ra it's wrapped up very quickly and not to jump ahead too much well, but remember that, he does hurry them up that's the thing like you're right in a way that potentially it's groundbreaking but because alan's trying to do it in two minutes he's just yeah. doing he's getting it all wrong You've got yeah. About a minute. He's, yeah. yeah he's expecting people to be fixed instantly i really enjoyed david schneider as peter in this bit mm -hmm. i think he had a lot of the best lines uh obviously they they sort of they interview uh they interview his partner first and talking about kind of the problems they're having their sex life and stuff and then should we go through the three-point therapy plan uh, have that down? Sure, yeah. So the three-point therapy plan uh, is birthing the emotions, dialoguing, uh, sorry, dialogue about the emotions and pledging towards a better future. Uh, and so, yeah, they interview uh, Linda, I think, first, and then Peter. Uh, Peter's question, they're like, they're like, oh, well, you know, what do you think? Yeah, the same, really. Um, and then when they <laughs> oh, ask but, him... But no loathing. Yeah, 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 no yeah loathing. No loathing. crucially. And then when they ask him about the sex, the sex life, he said, well, it's not happening to me either. <laughs> uh, and part of the reason it, happen it, does, it isn't happening is because Peter often smells of dog. <laughs> no <laughs> more information as to why or where that's coming from. But again, uh, a dog has been mentioned. Yeah, another unexplained dog reference. <laughs> yeah. I also think the therapist's in a bit of... Ali's in a bit of a hurry here because she moves on to pledging mm. time way too fast, even before Alan shouted, you've only you've got about a minute. Um, so, I mean, maybe she's been hurried by Alan before she even came on the show. Yeah. But she must know as a qualified therapist that it's too soon to get to the pledging stage after you know, <laughs> a minute of chat. Also, yeah, it's a very delicate process. And just, uh, yeah, just wrap it up. Also, when it comes to Peter's pledge, a pledge, Linda says uh, he's got all the people listening, for, uh, listening, rooting for him. Thirteen million. Where did yeah. she get thirteen million from? Well, I, I did, I did some research into Radio Four listening figures, but it's it's hard to know exactly what they would have been in nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Um, because like Radio's methodology was only introduced in nineteen ninety nine, but just some comparative data. In March nineteen ninety nine, Radio Four was averaging nine and a half million weekly. Okay, listeners. so it's not. Um, and it recorded 
since Radio began, it recorded its highest audience of over 11 million listeners in 2011. So I think it is feasible yeah. that Radio 4 listeners yeah. would be in that high. So, also, this was, what, 6.30? Yeah, well? but yeah. those are listening figures over a week. If this show was a week long, then, yeah, maybe 13 million mm. people would have heard it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At but any I, given time, uh, probably a couple yeah, of million people. But, I mean, it's also, you know, it's the second most popular... It's the second most listened to radio station after mm. Radio 2 in the UK. So oh, yeah. in, the 90, in 1992, when you've got a lot less broadcast choice... Yep. And it's straight after the six thirty news bulletin. It's it's it, it may not be as high as thirteen million, but it also may not be far off. I think, yeah, I agree. yeah. It's kind of a double edged joke, isn't it? Because one, the show itself um, probably did attract a large audience, but then the other side of the coin is, did Alan's show actually attract that? that many yeah, that's a good like point because in the APU, that would be far too successful. Exactly. That wouldn't really work, would it? Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, there's, they said that they used a lot of these guests in, in the radio shows to kind of make fun of types of people. And I think there's something interesting here where at the end of all of this kind of uh, the d- debate between Peter and Linda, the therapist decides that the answer is that Peter basically should, should just fix his ways and change completely, but that Linda should have more time on her own and take an extra lover. So <laughs> there's kind of a bit of a dig there at perhaps the idea that like maybe some therapists side with the woman in these sorts of debates. I don't know. I quite like how that gag unfolds as well because you have saying, okay, um, Linda, here's your pledge. Spend more time with myself. You're thinking, yeah. And take a lover to his by frustrations and just like the way the audience reacts, that's great. Yeah, especially after she's basically made Peter agree to do all sorts yeah. of, yes. you know, yeah. slightly yeah. less pleasant stuff. Um, and Alan then comes wandering over going, great stuff. That was absolutely fabulous. Yep. <laughs> I hope you're not <laughs> disturbed anymore. Yeah, I'm really disturbed. Uh, and then it says to Ali, so was that good therapy or balmy old cack? So it's time for this week's quiz, which I've titled <laughs> Good Therapy or Balmy Old Cack. Um, I'm going to read you 10 sentences. Some are from renowned psychotherapist BBC Radio 4's Susie Orbach's book in therapy and some are taken either from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website or as something <laughs> Noel Edmonds has said. Great. So join me as we play Good Therapy or Barmy Old Cack. Um, I think I'll probably need a consensus answer from yep. all of you. Okay. The first, sometimes we endow our partners with magical powers as though they can know us and see us and help us without our telling them. Good Therapy or Barmy Old Cack? Uh, 
So, sorry, Barmy yeah. Cack is Edmunds. Barmy Cack is either Edmunds or it's oh, right. from the Gwyneth Paltrow's right, right, group right. website. Sounds a bit goopy to me. I think it's Barmy Cack. Barmy Cack? I disagree, but I'll go with the consensus. We'll say Barmy Cack. I think it's Edmunds or Goop. You're saying Barmy Cack? You're saying Cack. That yeah. was good therapy. Wow. Oh, dear. <laughs> Number two. Like words chosen for a poem, the clutter of daily language is eviscerated. As Barmy oh, Cack. <laughs> Incorrect, it's good therapy. <laughs> Uh, three, stress is negative energy. The definition of stress is the breakdown of your body's engineering system. I've, I mean, I, mean, I still think it's balmy old cat. Yeah, I think we should play them as a numbers I game. I think if this is good therapy, I'm spotting a trend here. I'm spotting a... Should we say balmy old cat? Balmy old cat. Correct, Yay. that one's balmy old cat. Uh, number four, <laughs> the right amount of sleep may mitigate the risk of heart attack for those who are genetically predisposed. That sounds like good therapy. That sounds like good, good therapy. therapy. Yeah. Well, sadly, it's from the Goop website. Which <laughs> oh, <makes> it <laughs> this is a very scientifically engineered <laughs> Number five. Does shockwave therapy work for erectile dysfunction? Uh, keep going. That's it. Oh, I thought there was more information. No, sorry. <laughs> Just keen for more information. <laughs> uh, I think it's been put in there to sound like balmy or cack, but, yeah, but it's good. Yeah. But we, good we don't therapy? actually know when this... Therapy is uh, suggest good therapy has come from, so it might be good therapy from let's say good years and years ago. No, no, the good the, the, the book in therapy that the good therapy comes from. Uh, okay, pub published recently. Okay, yeah. fine. Good therapy. That's just good advice. It can't be good therapy. Okay, well, the set, no, but hang on, it's a, the fact that this phrase is a question makes it quite hard to. Um, good therapy. I don't know. It's balmy old cat. <laughs> uh, six. Joe's talking about rejection, and I find myself bounced into rejecting her. Oh God, I'm worried. It's good therapy. Barmy old cack. Good therapy. It's good therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. It's always difficult disrupting conventional ways of talking. Barmy old cack. <laughs> good therapy. Good therapy. Correct. It's good therapy. Number eight. Scientific fact. Disease is caused by negative energy. Is it possible you oh, will be like caused old by your negative energy? It. It's Edmunds. Barmy yeah. old cack. That is the tweet that Edmunds wrote. <laughs> the notorious tweet some years ago. Uh, nine. Where there was once a full stop, now there can be a comma. Barmy old cack. Good therapy. Sounds goopy. It's cack. No, it's good therapy. <laughs> oh, wrong. <laughs> and finally, number 10. We're all time strapped, which means there's no room in the itinerary for bad pizza. I mean, that just sounds like good advice. That sounds like good advice. Yeah, good therapy. Good, good therapy. therapy. It's barmy old cack. <laughs> quite clearly. <laughs> well, we, we had a shocker there. It must have been Edmunds, because like, there would be nothing about pizza on like Gwyneth's website uh, no she there is that's, what? that's from the Goop website oh, but she's like gluten life fun sugar vagina scented candles yeah. yeah there we go uh, well clearly you're all in need of some therapy and your brains Indeed. are full of balmy old cack but thanks for playing <laughs> I enjoyed that So there's a bit where Alan gives Ali a sex slash relationship based hypothetical uh, problem, which parallels the Knowing Me, Knowing You TV show where Alan gives a similar um, scenario to Daniela mm. Forrest, yep. um, played by Minnie Driver, um, who also helps people with their sexual problems. Uh, so Alan gives her a hypothetical um, situation looking for advice as well. So there's a bit of a carry on or, or a through line from from radio into TV. Um, this bit, he get, we get quite a lot of insight into his status at the moment as well. I've, I've bullet pointed it for my own reference. So he's, and I quote, doing quite well. He's yep. got a nice house. He's got a world of leather sofa. <laughs> uh, and then uh, obviously an excessive amount of detail about his nice car, electric yeah. windows, power steering, central locking, and it's maroon. But crucially also, he suspects an affair. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time that Carol's affair is mentioned, because I guess this is the first time he talks about Carol, his wife, mm. not... If you kind of disregard the zombie, the, wife. the zombie wife from on yeah. the hour, which I think 
for the purposes of the APU, we do have to kind of ignore that, mm. really. Which I think is quite nice because it means that you never you never encounter Alan in a happy marriage with Carol. <laughs> there are problems yeah. from day one. But it's, one of, it's one of a number of occasions where Alan can't see that material items don't equal happiness. There's, mm. a, there's just mm. a number of times where he will equate, um, you know, possessions and a status in life to um equaling a happy home life and he can't see how those two things aren't always in parallel world of leather gets quite a lot of um chat in uh the partridge universe in the apu because it's it's where alan supposedly got a store opening when he's in the police <laughs> station being questioned after the shooting of Forbes <laughs> McAllister. well that again i guess that's a good thing where that's i guess that's an easy thing for the gibbons to do is kind of they, they can dig into all these older scripts and just pull out okay alan's a fan of world of leather let's introduce the fact that he had a store opening for them whilst we're fleshing out a chapter on something in his past. Mm. Um, I did wonder, obviously he goes into quite a lot of detail about the car, um, particularly the electric windows and the power steering and the central locking. Is it fair to say those were three things that were worthy of showing off about in 1992? Yes, definitely. Yeah, Yeah. All new on the scene, I think. Um, And uh, yeah, so uh, as we've seen previously, the way that Ali dealt with the couple before, he says, so so where's the problem in this scenario? And she says, oh, it's with the man. And he says, well, you say it's all his fault, but let's try and paint the picture more clearly. (laughs) Keeps going into detail in the hope that she'll end up admitting that it might be Carol's fault. Um, But then she says that uh, actually, no, it's still the man and it's out of a fear of impotence and a fear of castration, uh, which Alan takes (laughs) issue with. No, 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 it's not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we all probably have a fear of castration, don't we? I know I don't want to be castrated. (laughs) It's not ideal. (laughs) Uh, A lovely line from Alan then when he says, I read a bit in your book that was highlighted in yellow by a researcher for me, that you're quite into (laughs) female orgasms. Uh, And then she tries to get him to describe what happens when he achieves an orgasm and he goes very quiet. Yeah, although he does go on to say, uh, although I think it's slightly before this, says, sort it out downstairs if you want to sort it out upstairs. Um, and just before uh, he moves on to the next guest, I noticed um, this might, this could be, this has got potential to be a, a, a joke that I've absolutely missed, but he calls her Ali Harris by mistake, not Ali yeah. Tennant. Yeah. Do, do, do we know what this is a reference to, or is this going to have to be, we're going to have to call in some listeners to help? To me, that feels like it's just a genuine mistake. Yeah. I think the way that line is delivered, I think he's just fluffed the character's name. Um, I've got in that. Yeah, that it feels quite, quite real, really. Yeah. It's just quite strange because it's, you know, if, if you call it Ali Front by accident, then that would make more sense because it's played by by, by Rebecca from mm. but I just mm. don't know where the name Harris came from but I wonder if if there are any other mistakes in here that obviously we don't notice but you know do you think that they would record a mistake in this setting if it happened or do you think they would just ru- let it run and see what like in this case it seems like it was a mistake and they just let it run but there might have been other stuff like if there's actual proper errors in the recording I assume they would stop and and redo it it's quite a familiar trope that he gets a name wrong yeah. he continues to do it throughout the whole of this series yeah, yeah but, but i think i think what you're saying is like because it doesn't doesn't contribute to the script yeah. anyway it isn't like a gag that has a payoff so yeah i don't know just the way it sounds i just think that's a genuine mistake and probably just with the flow of the show they just left kind it. of what why stop and re-record yeah. when you kind mm. of got you've got audience clapping and a guest yeah being wrapped up and it, stuff you it, just don't it, need to <laughs> And it, it kind of goes on to say, uh, she's a great lady or a mad old trout. <laughs> um, oh, he also calls her a bit strange because basically he doesn't understand her ideas as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he's sort of explaining the workings of TV to her, sorry, to radio to her while they're still live on the radio, asking her to move to another sofa to be quiet for a bit while yeah. I talk to my next guest. <laughs> then once I've got going, feel free to chip in. This is, I mean, people often credit Graham Norton for introducing this chat show guests out at the same time. But could it be that Alan created this world first by moving Ali down the sofa to get his next guest out? I would imagine that. I mean, I, I like that as an idea, but I would, I'm sure there were, 
there were other chat shows that probably did it as well mm-hmm. back in those days. I guess, like, what what did Wogan do? Because I think Wogan's always quite a heavy reference point for the Partridge Kimki Wap world. And I, I, feel, I feel like was Par- that one at a time or was that get together? I I'm not remember. sure, but I feel like Parkinson had two yeah, armchairs, definitely didn't he, with a little table right. in between, yep. so they did oh, have yeah, people yeah. out at the same time. Yep. Um, but anyway, it's time for Carnaby Street's Mr. Boutique of 1969. <laughs> uh, as soon as he started introducing this next guest, I got a real smell of gangster, a bit of a foreshadowing of um, the guy on uh, No Me No New TV. The oh, do, really? you wanna, do you want to get sucked in guy? Just because of the way he described him as being like, you know, a big a big presence on Carnaby Street and it, 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 in the 60s and 70s. So and he walks out to money, money, money as well. Yeah, I, 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 that, that's, that's what I was expecting, although it's not exactly what we get. Oh, that's interesting. That isn't something that I kind of, thought of um but yeah sure. so the next guest is adam wells 60s figure and businessman played by patrick marber uh wishing wells super green super sexy eco-friendly and blooming rich uh immediately turned off a little bit by adam wells when he says cheers it's a pleasure yeah <laughs> absolute dick <laughs> oh, there, there's another little bit here at the start um the, where the end of his mics come off you hear Adam saying oh the end of your mics come off so again whether that's just a genuine mistake that happened in recording but just keep it in because it makes it all feel and sound quite real. Yeah, or almost like they're, they're prioritising the flow of, mm, of, mm. of recording over picking out little mm. mistakes and resetting stuff. Or maybe even they just you know didn't have the audience for, for, for a huge amount of time and they had a lot of episodes to record. It just feels surprising that... Oh, but I, th- I think they did like one episode every two weeks or something. I think that's what Patrick Marber said. So oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it just contributes to the overall sense that it's not particularly well made and well put together. <laughs> I'd be surprised if it just happened and they left it. I think it's these small little things that um, just signpost the fact that the show is a little bit ramshackled. Mm. <laughs> there is another example coming up, actually, just to skip ahead slightly. Um, he talks about, um, Adam talks about the fact that he he knows the previous guest already by mm. saying... Ellie and I knew each other back then. Well, obviously the guest name is Ali. So there's another error there that seems to have been left in. I must admit I hadn't picked up on no, that one. I but that, spotted that, either. That, that one does feel a bit more of an odd one. So maybe you're right. Maybe it was a little bit not done on the fly as such, but there's just a few kind of errors along the way that they just didn't bother to fix or didn't notice at the time. Are you sure he says Ellie or does he just say Ali in a slightly weird way? Well, it, it could be mangled pronunciation, but to yeah. my ears, it, he said Ellie. Mm-hmm. Um, what, we, what were we saying in the script? Can't find oh, it, it won't be in the script. No, it won't be. There's there's a bit where he just he calls her Ali. So I think. But uh, yeah. speaking of mangled names, let's talk about Vagina. His <laughs> Vagina. His Vagina. His vegetable drink. Uh, it's fizzy. It's vegetable based. It's in an edible can. Question to the group: Would you drink Vagina? In 2020, again, we're talking about things that are slightly mm. ahead of its time. This yeah. does sound a little bit ahead of its time. Really. Well, I mean, you basically you can get vegetable based. Fizzy drinks in Pret. I mean, also, days, so on, I've had them. On a technicality, Coca Cola claims yeah. to have vegetable extracts, so it's no different from that. <laughs> and Dr Pepper as well. I mean, I'm very curious about the edible can. If it tastes nice, I would eat it. I would. Well, yeah, I've I think written so. that's that's a you know clearly a ridiculous product detail, but I did write down in 2020 that's probably being worked on somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like in the next section that he, again, it's sort of puncturing a type of guest that pretends they're very kind of very liberal and very free sexually, but then actually turns out that they've got some very hard limits. He says, uh, uh, when he's talking about the fact that Ali and he knew each other back in the day, back in the 60s, he said, uh, Alan says, how did you have an orgy? Did you ever see two girls kissing? He says, yeah, all the time. It was very free and easy. And Alan says, did you ever kiss a bloke? No. No. (laughs) And and that's, that's a nice little thread of Alan's sexual curiosity getting the better of him. He's always kind of a bit a bit too interested in kind of 
things of a homoerotic nature, isn't he? And he's always very fixated on the practical details and logistics. <laughs> yeah, like, how, how did he do it? How does it work? What goes where? Like, <laughs> bit by bit. You must remember. Yeah. Um, there, yeah. There's a bit when just before that when he talks about his 60s being spent in Norwich and he's trying to make out how it was like crazy partying all day we, long. Do you mean naughty long. Norwich? Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, for about three weeks, just had amazing barbecues nonstop, all day long, amazing. So we learn later in the series his... His actual birthday is the 2nd of April, 1955. So it's quite good to see that throughout everything in the APU that the the timelines in terms of his age do actually match up. So in his 60s, he would... In the 60s, sorry, he would have been aged 5 to 15. Uh, at the time of us recording this series now, um, Alan Gordon Partridge would be 64 and nearly 65. And in fact, if everything goes to plan with how we're going to launch these episodes, he'll be 65 a day after Monkey Tennis Series 9, Episode 1. Happy birthday, Alan. Happy birthday, Alan. Um, Although this will be weeks after that by that time. Um, So yeah, in 1997, I'm Alan Partridge Series 1. The character is 42, and that checks out. And in 2002, with I'm Alan Partridge Series 2, he'd be 47, which also checks out when it comes to him referencing Sonia's age and everything. Um, Nearly being 50 as well. Exactly. Adam... Wells has been a busy man through his career. Not only has he had time to do lots of orgies, although not kiss any blokes, um, and release uh, vegetable drinks in edible cans, he also had a novelty hit, The Smiling Bicycle of Amsterdam, which hit number 23 in the charts. Um, I think we should probably pipe a little bit of that in for listeners now. Let's hear it. I haven't heard it for years. Listen to this. So some evidence there with the Smiling Bicycle of Amsterdam that he was eco-conscious even 24 years prior to this appearance on uh, Know Me, Know You. Um, I did enjoy the moment as well where uh, Alan thanked him for bringing the clip in. I didn't see yeah, that coming. But oh, yeah. That. Especially as it follows him saying to Alan, oh, you're a naughty yeah. man. That's so embarrassing. Oh, I can't believe you've done that. Yeah. And, and also not just that Alan says, thanks for bringing it in. He also says, can I just say thanks for bringing it in? We couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, this series is much more at the guest's expense as Alan. I think we're encouraged to side with him so much yeah. more than we do in sort of I'm Alan Partridge. Uh, and then, yeah, we find out in 1971, he invented the slogan you heard from Tom Stab at the top of this episode. No tree has died. No child has cried to make the product that you have buyed. <laughs> I've got a note next to that line which just says, this guy's a Burke. Oh, yep. absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it turns out that the, his original shop flair, it, the idea was we wanted to sell cheap ethnic clobber to the masses, but made in Britain. So <laughs> it's absolutely the yeah. worst type of cultural appropriation not even not even providing any sort of uh, service or employment to the people who came up with these uh, designs in the first place I, l- I love Alan's response to that as well he's like right so they can buy it and not feel guilty like Alan's on board with this idea straight yeah, away he yeah. thinks it's fine um, and then we, it turns into a bit of a, a passage where Alan's talking about Denise and Fernando going out clubbing together now I'd always imagined that they weren't of a similar enough age that they would go clubbing together, but I guess they're only a few years different. I don't think they're that they're that uh, far apart uh, in terms of ages, but I mean, who goes out clubbing with their brother or sister? Is it? And this is the first mention of Denise and Fernando, right? Uh, yes, I think so. Cause yeah, because it gets a bit of a laugh from the audience, doesn't it? Yeah, because I, I I checked from what I could tell, there's no mention of him having kids in the on the hour episodes. It's only a few references to Carol, but that's Carol as a zombie. So maybe it's not even Carol. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is the first Denise and Fernando mentioned yet. 
Uh, and then we uh, find out that Alan has got his A and O levels framed. Very proud of those. Uh, and that he got a B when he retook French, which I was actually quite surprised and impressed by. Oh, and actually, I think the interesting point here is you've got um, Adam Wells saying he was educated at the University of Life and Alan saying, so was I, but we know that's not true. Mm. He went to a polytechnic. Mm. So he's just trying to ingratiate himself to the guest, just just trying to impress him, basically. Be like, oh, yeah, I'm the same as you. I actually received the CV from a candidate for a job recently and they put University of Life under their no. education. So when do they start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're in the queue just behind the person that had a skills section with a big blank space underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> All things that happened to me in real life. Um, Adam's ad has been banned because apparently, according to him, feminists and students are running the uh, advertising standards authority. He's very angry about that. Um, and then you hear a snippet of the ad, David Schneider doing the voiceover, uh, and it's basically listing people who've died and implying that the drink is for life, not death. I sort of, um, as in the build-up to this, where they kind of say, oh, we should hear the ad, and, and then they play it, I, I sort of expected the ad to be a bit more funny it's just a bit stark uh, and it's not actually all that funny yeah no it's I not was kind it's, of a bit like oh really it's not an episode high point i don't think no no well, i uh, guess that's kind of the point like it's just quite jarring and i just thought yeah. it was an opportunity where it could have been quite funny and actually it's just not that funny although i did like where it progresses like battered <laughs> things <laughs> like that maureen hadley 87 vegina battered it, yeah it's fine it's fine. Uh, things go from bad to worse. Not only the ASA banned the ad, but the DTI are investigating Adam because of sweatshops in Thailand. Uh, Amnesty are also reporting on it. Um, and then he says, there's a good point here. Who is Amnesty? Amnesty is five bitter bearded hippies. <laughs> uh, and at this point, even Adam and Ali are falling out. You know, old friends mm. used to orgy together. But now, because he used to be a sort of slightly eco-conscious hippie and he's now become sort of basically a very a sort of conservative, yeah. faux, eco kind of uh, contrarian they're uh, they're falling out really badly uh, but alan says we'll have amnesty on next week and ken dodd hopefully <laughs> apropos of nothing so he claims that the age of majority like the threshold for for adulthood as recognized by law in thailand is 11 i looked it up it's actually 20 oh. so older than us wow yeah i thought this was quite a rare instance of alan having being a bit journalistic as well when he starts digging into like sweatshops in thailand and questioning kind of like working practices yeah it's actually quite unusual for him to take this kind of journalistic angle and you yeah. see you know him I mean? flex but those chops again in this time but probably not so much in knowing me knowing you tv yeah. that's kept quite light entertainment isn't it yeah but oh. it's a rare occasion he's got some facts at his disposal some facts but, <laughs> some, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but then do remember he goes on an absolute tirade where he essentially suggests that adam is impotent yeah, now yep. I thought this section was interesting because I thought it was gonna the accusation was gonna he was gonna be levelling some kind of accusation of paedophilia or something like that. Yeah. Because when he keeps on talking about eleven year old boys, like they don't mind eleven year old boys, that kind of thing. I was like thinking, Oh god, where's this gonna go? So I thought the firing blanks thing was actually a bit of a left turn. Do you think it's one of those things where they had it all written and at the last minute they kind of decided to pull that punch? They didn't want to end episode one with basically a sort of to take too dark a turn. I almost think that it it's the character is being formed and established at that point, and it, we now think it probably would have made sense to go down that route, but I wonder if you almost couldn't be so extreme in the beginning, um, and so you kind of need to build up to that almost. Well, I have some insight into this. Um, I found a, there's a website um, called Some of the Corpses Are Amusing, so S-O-T-C-A... Oh, did Jed give you that? <laughs> no, bear with me. This is actually this is genuinely quite interesting. So it's like a comedy website which used to exist, I think, like more in like the early 2000s. I don't think it's been updated for years. It's quite an outdated kind of design. But there's um, a few pages on some of the origins of Alan Partridge staff. 
And that's where I found out about them being like longer recording processes. So like a 90 minute record being chopped down to half an hour. So there was an original version of this exchange at the end of the episode with a kind of different revelation. So I'll just go through that now. Um, Alan saying, and and it's kind of annoying. I can't find the audio for this anywhere, but basically what they were saying is like, this was on the pilot version of this episode. Alan saying, and you were there in the 60s, 70s, loads of money, back and forth to Thailand, loads of 11-year-old boys. Wells, I've got to look after my staff. Alan, you've got, you bit off more than you can chew. I'll tell you what I'm trying to say. Wells, why don't you come out with it? Alan, you've been meddling and it's reaping revenge. You've got the big one. You've got AIDS. Ali Tennant, oh no, you can't say that. Wells, for God's sake, Alan, and on that bombshell. So the original version of this was right. Alan called, um, Alan exposing him having AIDS. So that's arguably so, it's all these different explosive ends to an episode and like maybe choosing one. So wait, was that recorded in this, as in when this was recorded and they recorded two so. different versions or they recorded a separate pilot episode first? My understanding of it is that they must have recorded a few different versions of that by the sounds of it because mm. I think that from from what I've read that it's basically the pilot version was slightly longer mm. and then what finally broadcast on Radio 4 had a different ending. So they probably did that in one session. So whether they just thought having an AIDS expose was a bit too much for a Radio 4 tea time Yeah, probably at yeah, 6.30, yeah. yeah. And or, and or perhaps that the implication there was still of paedophilia, like that's how he... That's how he developed the AIDS. Yeah, I mean, not to I, get too I, dark at the end of this episode. Well, I mean, <laughs> either way, the, the, that is the interesting thing. So I wonder whether there was even an alternate version about paedophilia because mm. the eleven-year-old boys thing doesn't actually pay off directly to either of those. Well, that's where I think the the whole like you know impotent and you know spreading a seed thing is. I wouldn't say I'm advocating for the alternative uh, joke that you've just um, laid out there, but it's not as funny as it could have been in terms of the mm. payoff because it's perfectly plausible and reasonable that a man can have lots of sex and just choose not to have children. That can <laughs> yeah, just exactly. be a lifestyle yeah. Yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of like softens the uh, the end of the series, where at uh, the end of the show, sorry, where it, it could have been quite funny going down the kind of uh, slightly darker route, but maybe the one you've laid out is a, is a bit much. Well, if, the, if, if in the APU, Know Me Knowing You, the radio show had happened later in the timeline alan probably would have got obsessed about the uh about thailand and ladyboys because he, he talks yeah. about thailand but there's no like he did that part of developed that no yet. exactly yeah. so there was no kind of uh, obsession with ladyboys or yeah at this point in alan's uh in alan's psyche i'd be interested if anybody listening uh has actually heard this original radio 4 pilot if they if they're able to access a copy of it or anything because yeah i couldn't find it online but like i say the website I found this information on, I think, probably hasn't been updated since about 2001. Mm. So it's just probably one of those things that it isn't present on the internet anymore. But yeah, I mean, like we've kind of said, if anybody listening did ever go to a record or has any more information about how they recorded these things, it would genuinely be quite interesting to know how yeah. that all played out. Contact details coming up in a second. Uh, so that's the second on that bombshell of this episode uh, <laughs> and uh, and the first time that he uh, ends an episode with it as well. Um, I thought it was quite cool the way that they include all of the names of the cast, that Alan, effectively in character, yeah. thanks Steve Coogan and the cast and writers, you know, mm, uh, yeah. Dune, Patrick and Rebecca and so on. Um, we'll come on to it, but... Th- he usually thanks them all in the same order uh, with himself first. Um, right. Except there's one episode where his name goes to the end. I was going to say, he's not always first. No, I'm not totally sure why, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll get to that episode when we get to it, I suppose. Um, also, uh, the version I listened to seemed to claim that this went out at 10.30pm, but you're telling us it, came, it went out after a news bulletin earlier in the evening as well. So perhaps I've heard a repeat. And so also you've heard a repeat. I think this goes back to the clipping that we've heard, because if you listen to... Uh, I can't remember this episode three or episode four. Um, it's 
from like 2015 or something. Right. So it's a relatively recent yeah, that's re-airing. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, the 1992 broadcasts were Radio 4, 6.30 p.m. Yeah. Okay. And we'll get onto it into the, in the next episode, but the letter of complaint that the BBC received about the show, someone thinking it was real, I'm pretty sure references that they li- heard it at 6.30 yeah, p.m. Yeah, we'll, as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, come to that in full later in uh, the, the series. Yes. Uh, anything else to add for episode one? Yeah, j- just one thing, and I think this is something Adam Wells is saying perhaps whilst other characters are speaking, so it's kind of something that pulls out more when you read the script. You have him saying, who is Alan Partridge? Who is this guy? What is he? Look at him. I just love the fact that guests on the show are even like, questioning the validity of who this presenter is. I thought that was quite a nice little touch and it's it's quite subtle in the in the mix of what's happening in the show at that time. So yeah, that's the end of the episode. General thoughts as a series opener. What do we think? Fans? Good? Bad? What are we, what are we saying? I think a, a, a couple of missteps, a couple of pulled punches, but otherwise very funny. I like the structured nature of it. I think the danger with radio versus TV is that there is a tendency of everybody to treat it a bit more like a radio play. It's a little bit overspoken, a little bit theatrical in places, but it is very funny. I think it's really enjoyable. Is that a bit more of the time as well? It's just I just feel like comedy, particularly radio comedy, would have been delivered in a bit of a different way to perhaps what we might expect Quite possibly, and you know? certainly, I think I think this this feels. I mean, obviously, it's distinctly Alan, but it's got a bit of a hint of that Radio Four comedy hour. Yeah. Yeah. My theatrical. next guest is going to be mm. yeah, light yeah. applause, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree, but yeah, I think it's I think it's good, and it it very much sets the tone for what's going to come, doesn't it? Like every interaction with a with a guest goes badly. Alan's kind of constantly on the back foot, so yeah, it, it, I I don't think it's the best episode of the series, but I think it definitely lays things out in a, in, in a very good fashion. I'd yeah. agree with that. So when you consider this went out in 1992 and I hadn't heard it uh, before, I just think it's interesting that it is in no way subpar um, and it, it certainly stands the test of time uh, and establishes a lot of the kind of character tropes that we kind of come to know and love of later Partridge. So in summary, very good. Would you say, it? I, I, what I found quite interesting going back listening to this, kind of like we talked about earlier, his voice being so different, it took me a few episodes to get used to that again because he sounds so different to modern day Partridge. Like it felt a bit, the first couple of episodes going back to this felt a bit jarring and it almost felt like a different character. But after you got used to it, it's then, it doesn't become a problem to flip backwards and forwards between yeah. the different eras. And I mean, as Patrick Marber said in, in, in the interview last year that we referenced before, it's it's still Steve very much finding his feet and kind of mm. grounding Alan in a bit of reality, whereas he's only ever had to conjure up enough Alan to fill kind of two minute segments at a time uh, before now. Mm. Um, so that's the end of episode one of Know Me Knowing You radio show uh, we're going to be back next week with episode two featuring uh, all of us and uh, a hypnotist a child prodigy and a slightly dodgy lawyer um, if you've got any thoughts about uh, Know Me Knowing You uh, radio episode one or the series as a whole please do get in touch especially if you're in the audience and can give us a bit of insight there thepartridgepod at gmail.com on Facebook it's facebook.com slash thepartridgepod Twitter at thepartridgepod Instagram at monkeytennispod and the Monkey Tennis hotline you can leave us a voice note which may end up being part of a future episode by calling 07923-600-017. From all of us at Monkey Tennis at the Alan Partridge Fan Podcast, thanks and goodbye. It's been a pleasure. So talk to me about that erectile dysfunction therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Knowing Me, Knowing You, Knowing Me, Alan Partridge, Knowing You, the audience. I've got a hit on my hands. 
Monkey tennis? Is that good therapy or balmy old cack? Conrad Knight's Monkey tennis? I'm Alan Partridge. Why are you such a tip? Lots of meaty chats. Monkey tennis? I just want you to admit that you hate Les Dennis. What is it? What is it? What is it? Monkey tennis? Okay, I'm in Manhattan. What do I do now? You are a little shit. Monkey tennis? That in England is a whore. I've taken drugs! Lord Morgan. If you speak again, I will physically hit you. And on that bombshell... Monkey tennis? Thank goodness it's radio. I never thought I'd say that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.